This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-aged children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to double back and we are going to continue in our talks with Jerry Lewis on the topic of statement analysis. Today, we're going to talk about the case out of Colorado back in 1996, the death of John Benet Ramsey, young girl, age six, found dead in her parents' home. It was a case that was made famous, massive news coverage, a lot of controversy, a lot of accusations, um, and to, to, up to today, no, no arrests or convictions. So um, if you remember back, it was December of... Uh, December 25th, it was Christmas night of 1996, when this little girl was was killed in her parents' home. So we're going to go through the statements, and um, we'll give you a little background of the case, and we're going to go through some statements again, and and um, we'll give you something to think about as far as what some of the answers that were given by the mother, the father, the brother, and uh, some other folks here. So Jerry, man, thanks for coming back. I appreciate you being here. Hey, thanks, Howie. I'm glad that you had me come back. This case is... Uh of interest to so many people across the country and the world. Just everybody just feels horrible over what happened. And of course, everybody's wondering what happened and who did it. And I think by reviewing some of the things, the attempts, the investigations that have been done, conclusions that have been made first to see uh, whether they think it's either the family is involved, the family is involved, or it's a stranger that came in the house if we review some of that material before we get to the statements, I think it'll help everybody make their own conclusion. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let me take you back there. It was December 25th, Christmas night, 1996. The Ramsey family, they were at a Christmas party at their friends, their best friend, a gentleman by the name of Fleet White at his home. Uh, the records show that they returned home around 10 PM. 
and uh, John Benet had fallen asleep in the car. And when they returned home, she was carried uh, upstairs and put to bed by her dad, John Ramsey. Her mother, Patsy, she stayed up. She was packing. Uh, they were heading out on a trip the next day. So she was getting everything, getting everything ready when they all went to sleep. Patsy woke up in the morning around 5 or 5.30. And as she went down the stairs, she found a three-page ransom note. It's sitting on the steps leading downstairs, um, just before you got to the bottom of the stairs there. Uh, <clears throat> she, I, I believe she then called her husband, looking for her husband, and um, notification was made to the police, uh, and the investigation had started. A couple of interesting things about it. Seven hours after this, and the investigation had unfolded, the police had arrived and started doing things. John Ramsey, the father, was asked to search the house again. I remember hearing that over and over in this case and thinking, why would they ask him to do this? And why would you ask a father to go search if you're there doing this case? Linda Arndt was the detective at the house, and she had gotten a uh, request from her department, and they also thought it would be a way of kind of giving the family something to do. And it's always one of the first things they're supposed to do is search the house to make sure every nook and cranny that she's not still there. Sure. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of crazy. One of the things John did was he asked his friend Fleet White to go down towards the basement with him. They went down in the basement. Um, Fleet White was with him, and upon opening a door of a room in the basement, John Ramsey immediately yelled, "Oh my God!" And he had found her lying on the floor. Um. Fleet White had earlier looked in that room but could not find the light switch and it was too dark to see anything. And that was a that became a point of controversy later. Like he said, I, I don't even know how he would have seen her so quickly when he went in that room. He couldn't see where she was. She was off to one side. He said that when when John was asked to search the house again, he asked Fleet to go with him. Fleet White said they went downstairs. John immediately led Fleet White over to that window that was partially open and showed him that. And then he said he made a beeline right for that room that was one that, you know, Fleet White didn't even think would be worth looking into. And Fleet White later said as soon as he stepped in there and turned the light on, he yelled. It, you know, whether that was, that was an indication that he knew the body was in there or not has been a point of contention. Yeah, and that's one that's just going to hang in the air for a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, the, you know, John Bonet, young girl, was found dead. Uh, the Medical uh, examination, autopsy revealed she died uh, from a blow to her head, uh, along uh, in addition to asphyxiation from a garrot. She was strangled. The garrot happened to have been made from a broken paintbrush handle, which belonged to her mother Patsy, and a string that was also used by Patsy to wrap pictures that she had painted, kind of, I guess, an arts and crafts area and down there. Those items were in that room. That's a room where she would wrap their paintings. So some of those supplies were in there. Which could be, a, you know, a, considered a, a weapon of opportunity, depending if it was somebody else or not. Um, both parents obtained separate attorneys to represent them that day, which is kind of a, yeah. kind of odd. Yeah. Um, according to Linda Arndt, who he said was the uh, Boulder police officer, John had disappeared during the afternoon for a period of time. Uh, he later stated that he had gone to get the mail. 
and also made arrangements for the family to fly to Atlanta. Now, you might find that completely bizarre, and if you do, well, you should. Your daughter's found dead, your six-year-old's found dead, strangled with a fractured skull in the basement. You disappear to check your mail. You're also waiting for a ransom call. We're going to read you in a moment here the ransom note. Uh, and you decide to go, you're still going on your trip. I don't under, quite understand. <laughs> you're still yep. going to fly to Atlanta, but it, the whole behavioral pattern, you could say, well, you know, maybe they were in shock. Maybe they, yeah. Well, I don't think you would leave the phone. No, I don't think you would leave the house. Right. I mean, I'd be, in a, I, I, I would, I, I would be going into warrior mode here. If somebody killed my daughter. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're, this is an all hands on deck. We got to go to, we got to go get to work. Now I got to go check the mail and make some flight arrangements. So I don't understand that. But uh, Lou Smith was one of the most experienced homicide detectives that worked on the case. He believed that the evidence showed that an intruder entered the home and committed the murder. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of breezing through some of this. Later on, 1999, a grand jury was convened. Now you got to remember, between the time this murder happened and the grand jury, there was so much talk and accusations. Were the parents involved? Was the brother involved? Was an outsider involved. Um, but in 1999, as this thing continued on, a grand jury was convened and they heard evidence in the case, which could support theories that someone in the family was responsible or that a stranger came into the home. In 2013, it was revealed that the grand jury recommended filing charges against the parents for permitting the child to be in a threatening situation as well as hindering the prosecution of an unidentified person who had, quote, committed the crime of murder in the first degree. Also, child abuse resulting in the death. However, the DA determined there was insufficient evidence to pursue a successful indictment. The U.S. District Court judge held a hearing, and after listening to all of the evidence, concluded that there was abundant evidence in the murder case pointing to an intruder having committed the crime. Dating back in August of 2006, the Boulder DA's office, they had at one point announced the arrest of John Mark Carr for the murder of John Binet. I'll just interrupt you yeah, there. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us about John Mark um, Carr. I used to talk about this case in my class, and I'd gone over it that day um, about the intruder theory versus someone in the family. And that night, I started getting emails from people that had been in the class. And they said, did you see they just made an arrest in the John JonBenet uh, murder case? I looked it up, and it actually said John Mark Carr, I think he was in Thailand, was extradited and brought back for the murder of John JonBenet. And even though that's it, the strongest language that you could have is to arrest him for her murder, I have the emails that I sent back to the people that have been in the class saying, I know that I'm going to look like an idiot, but I'm still sticking to my theory i think you're going to find it's not a stranger came in the house he's probably not the person that did it so i thought that i was really going to look bad but in the end it turns out that they unarrested him and found out that he was actually at home i believe on christmas in georgia in georgia yeah later on you know during the course of these investigations obviously one of the one of the golden pieces of evidence if we can get it is dna evidence well, during, as this thing unfolded, the entire family was actually cleared by the district attorney, stating that touch DNA found in John Benet's underwear 
and under her fingernails did not match anyone in the family. Now, it had been stated that John Bonet was alive while she was being strangled and clawed at the garage around her neck. If that was the case, wouldn't her own DNA be also be under her fingernails? Her own, if she was clawing at her own neck to try to clear, wouldn't her own skin cells and, and whatnot be under there? Wouldn't that match the family then? That would match the family, absolutely. Right. So that that's that's a that's an issue there that's still kind of up in the air. There's a documentary that came out years later, uh, one in which Dr. Henry Lee, the famous Dr. Henry Lee, stated that current methods of obtaining DNA samples are so sensitive that with touch DNA, it could have actually come from the manufacturers of the underwear. He took a brand new pair, opened the package in the lab, and found human DNA on them. The specimen size of the sample closely matched the amount of touch DNA apparently found in John Bonet's underwear. So he's trying to explain away, like, look, you've got touch DNA. This don't, don't, don't necessarily clear the family yet. This could have come from somewhere else. He said that there's supposed to be 13 markers of DNA to be conclusive, and these uh, samples only held four, mm -hmm. which was consistent with what he did with the underwear that was brand new from the store. After all this time that goes by, you know, you think, like, maybe the DA is like, just, okay, we got DNA. Let's just get rid of this. This case is a loser. We're not, we're not getting anywhere. Let's, uh, let's put it to bed, so to speak. I, mean, I don't know how many DAs they had gone through by that time, but, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them all. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, as a matter of fact, too, from a crime scene investigation standpoint. So now, other uh, uh, analysis that were done, handwriting analysis, as they got into the uh, ransom note. Numerous samples of Patsy's handwriting, the mother, were obtained. And John's handwriting as well was ruled out. His were, results were inconclusive. Po they say possibly due to the medications that Patsy was on at the time the samples were obtained. They did have samples from before the murder of Patsy's writing uh, or the attempt by the notes writer to cover up his or her identity. It is interesting to note that when the arrest of John Mark Carr was announced, three handwriting analysts announced to the press that his handwriting was an exact match. Um, there was a, a four letters SBTC was written on the bottom of the note, and it was theorized that if John wrote it, the initials stood for Subic Bay, Subic Bay Training Center, which uh, is where he had been employed at one time. When John Mark Carr was arrested, it was real that it was revealed that in his high school yearbook, he wrote "Shall be the conqueror." Amazing. It just gets weirder and weirder. Um, you, Jerry, you want to talk about the criminal profilers? Yeah, tell, the, tell us what they did. The family uh, wanted to hire early on a criminal profiler, and they hired uh, retired FBI agent John Douglas, who's famous for doing it. And this was the quote that he made to the press. While looking at this man, Mr. Ramsey, if you did it, you are one hell of a liar. You put on a great production here, but I just don't believe in my heart he did this. So to me, that part of his statement looks like he's going really by a gut feeling that he just can't believe that he's sitting across from someone that could do something like this. But I would just add that during my career, I sat in a room with more than 50 confirmed murderers that at the time we didn't know if they had done it or not. And most of the time, when I walked in and the way they greeted me and were drinking coffee, my feeling was I, I can't believe this guy just murdered someone. You know, it's like, it's hard for the average person 
to believe that someone committed a murder. So yeah. that's kind of his gut feeling. But then he did continue, not just in my heart, but from the analysis of the scene, he concluded that he did not feel that John was involved. They then interview FBI profiler Greg McGarry, who had worked with John Douglas. He had turned down an offer to work for the Ramses, and his quote was, I am not sure how John came to the conclusions that he came to, unless he knows things that I don't know, unless he had access to information that I have not had access to. So looking at the facts of the crime scene that he had, uh, he could not agree to rule out John. John Douglas was then careful to explain he had focused his efforts only on John Ramsey. When asked whether he ever focused on Patsy, he answered, not really. Now that to me would be kind of, he kind of did, but he doesn't want to make a conclusion. (laughs) He could have said no. He said, not really, because when I went out there, the primary information that I had was that this was a sexual assault where there was semen, but it turned out there was not semen. And he would not make any direct comment on uh, Patsy's involvement. Hmm. And then later there were polygraphs done. You want to talk about that? Yeah. The um, parents had not agreed to take a polygraph from the FBI, you know, feeling that it wouldn't be favorable to them because they thought the opinions were already decided. But they hired the, uh, probably who you would think is the best person to run a test was the president of the American Polygraph Association at the time. And he came out with his conclusions, and based on his conclusions, his questions were, both John and Patsy, did they kill their daughter? Did they know who did? And was Patsy Ramsey the author of the ransom note? Uh, They concluded that they were both telling the truth, that they were not involved. What's interesting to me is Dateline NBC conducted a poll after the polygraph results were announced. They had 501 people answer, and they asked the people how many thought this test results were accurate. So 28% of the people said they weren't sure. Only 7% of the people thought it was accurate. Wow. And 54% did not think it's accurate. And my career in a polygraph unit would tell me people don't change their minds. If they think somebody's truthful or they think somebody's lying, it doesn't really matter what you say even Mm -hmm. though you're supposedly an expert with a polygraph. And that kind of uh, shows that's what people would do. Well, something's wrong. You know, it wasn't run right. Something happened, right? But even more interesting was a second poll. They asked people whether the results changed their opinion of what they originally thought. How many people believe them more because they passed the test? 6%. Here's what's great. How many people believe them less after they pass a polygraph? 7%. Hmm. So more people now don't believe them that did because they passed the polygraph, right? And 76% of the people reported that their opinions didn't change at all due to the polygraph results. You know what I find amazing about that? And it's, a, it's an episode we're going to do in the future, which I'd like you to be involved in as well when we get there. It's, and we're going to do a topic on the effects of media. Me, not just media bias, but media reporting and how much effect it has on the public. So you can imagine, by the time this was done, how many times they'd been interviewed, how much statements were, were out there, how much public opinion was being talked about, how much the news had, had manipulated. So when you say 76% didn't unchange, they already made up their mind from the media coverage. Right. So yep. th- that can be di- really dangerous or powerful for a jury. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hmm. Wow. All right, so the ransom note. 
The note is one of the most important pieces of evidence in the case, obviously. We know it was written by someone involved in the crime. Other evidence, such as touch DNA handwriting analysis, the polygraphs, actions by the suspects, they can be interpreted differently depending on someone's point of view. The note was written. This is, this is some interesting fact. The note was written on Patsy's pad and used Patsy's marker. The pad was then put back in the drawer that it came out of, and there was a second note found. The writer of that note had started the note, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, and then it was scrapped. The second note started Mr. Ramsey. Who would take Mrs. Ramsey's name off the note? You wouldn't write a note yourself or to yourself. Wouldn't you want the mother of the kidnapped child to be involved in the decision to pay the ransom? I mean, and, your... and if you were looking for a ransom, wouldn't you have brought a note? Wouldn't you have brought paper and a pen and you're going to scrounge around feeling comfortable in a house to look for a pad and a pen to write a note out? Sure. That should have been done on the way there. You want in, you want out. Right. I mean, if you're going to snatch this kid, you're going to take her and run. Why? You know the other million dollar question? Why are you leaving a ransom note when the, the child's dead in the house? Exactly. If, if you were going to ransom, but the, the, the child died, why are you going to stay there at the scene of a murder that you just did and write out a note? Yeah. And then leave it on the steps. Especially if you are a stranger that would never be connected to it. Right. You would just get out of Dodge. Yeah. Now it's important to note the note, the, the ransom notes, three pages. And according to uh, one of the te television documentaries that, that talked about this, it's one of the longest ransom notes ever to uh, be known to left in one of the be left in one of these types of cases. Generally, they're much shorter. Um, on that same documentary, uh, doc with Dr. Henry Lee, three people um, wrote the note to see how long it would take, and it took twenty-one minutes to write, an average time. That is while knowing which words to print. It's not like you're thinking about what to write. Imagine adding the time it took to compose the note. How long did the kidnapper or murderer feel comfortable sitting in the home? That's, a, that's an interesting question. What, are you going to sit down at the kitchen table and start drafting a note? The note is very organized. There is a title line in which John Ramsey is addressed in a respectful manner. Um, all of the sentences start in the left margin, and it's, it's pretty, pretty organized. Why don't you go through that and tell us you know, some of these points? Yeah, they start off, up. Mr. Ramsey, very polite, respectful. Right. You're kidnapping his daughter, but you're being very polite. It's organized like a business letter with the margins. Perfect. The, the uh, paragraph indentations, uh, it denotes different topics as it changes paragraphs. It's neatly printed, not scrawled. So there's the person is not in a hurry. It's signed in the proper place. So on page one, the first paragraph, you want to read that Howie page one, first paragraph. Um, Misspellings, business. He misspelled the word business and possession. This could be the writer Let's trying to do the. Which one are you talking about? Oh, yes. the actual note. Yeah, read it. If you have the copy of it there. Yeah. Just read the first paragraph. So the first paragraph is titled Mr. Ramsey. Listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We, and then there's a word crossed out, respect your business but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. 
And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. So that's the first paragraph. What's interesting is it said we are a group of individuals. Interesting. Like more than one person is there. And they represent a small foreign faction. Other people have made a conclusion that when you're foreign, you don't refer to yourself as foreign. You don't think you're foreign, right? But they say that they respect Mr. Ramsey, but not America. So why are they taking his daughter? They respect him. Yeah. It's nothing to do with America. So that, the gist of this right here makes no sense whatsoever as to why this crime even occurred. They're not spelling it out in any way that makes any sense, right? They're just putting words down. They also misspell two words in the first paragraph, business and possession. And yet you'll see in the next paragraph, they correctly spell the word attache. Which is just a bizarre word to use anyways. Yeah. Who uses that? That would be, that would indicate a good suspect who uses the word attache. Right. And they put the accent mark over the E of attache. Hmm. So one of the suspects that, that you heard later on was a guy that worked in a junkyard and thought he was coming into some money and then he later committed suicide. I don't think he used the word attache and I don't think he knew how to spell it. Probably. Yeah. Right. <laughs> probably not. With the, with the accent mark. Yeah. All right. Second paragraph in the note, this, this actually, I mean, this jumped out at me like immediately. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. 100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining 18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting. So I advise you to be rested. Uh, is it if we monitor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange on an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. And in between earlier pickup, there is another word crossed out. So that's the end of that paragraph. So there's a couple of things in there that jump. Yeah. Even me, which in, in this world, I mean, you're the expert in this. I consider myself more of a layperson in this, but there's a few things that jump at me, which got to jump out at you. 118 grand. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to do all this for Who the that? hell says that? Why did we pick that number? Right. And then you find out later. Go ahead. That's his bonus that yeah. he got in December. Right. Right. Now, who would know that number one? why would you put an uneven number instead of saying a million or something like that? You know, the amount of money just jumps out at you that somebody's familiar with John and, and the uh, ransom that he got. Another thing, it's so wordy. They could have done this whole note and said, we have your daughter or call you. you yeah. Um, an FBI linguist read this over and he thought the note was written by a woman. He said, there's concern in the note. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache. Also, the delivery would be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. And yeah, what he, the hell is he that? He thought those things were more of what a female writer of the note might put in there, worried about the kidnapper's comfort. See, I didn't even see that part. 
And that's and I'm very interested that you brought that up because I feel stupid that I didn't see that. <laughs> the thing, the other thing that jumped out at me was hence. Well, that's the next thing. Who the hell says that? Who uses the word and hence would be another thing like the attache. Um, the writer is inconsistent there with the pronouns we and I going back and forth. So it's not a consistently written note. Uh, maybe it's being dictated by someone else in part, so it's we, and other parts are put together by the person uh, reading it. The term and hence is seldom used. It's often said without the word and. Right, just hence. hence. Now, interesting, Patsy used these words at her daughter's memorial service on December 14th, 1997. Patsy said, quote, had there been no birth of Christ, there would be no hope of eternal life, and hence no hope of ever being with our loved ones again. This was brought up to her, her terminology, and she said it. she must have picked those terms up because she read the note so many times, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'd go that the that. note influenced her using that language later, but certainly is interesting. You know, it's funny that, that she would say the note influenced her. I could see the note traumatizing her. I don't know about influencing her. Right. Especially, uh, you know, that, that phrase, that's just... Um, that's something I would have a hard time getting around and accepting. Well, no, it's no big deal. No, that is kind of a big deal. Right. That's kind of a big deal. Okay. So third paragraph of the note. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not, and not is kind of put in there after the fact, do not particularly uh, like you. And so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking, to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try and grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around. So don't think that killing will be, a diffi will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Signed, Victory, exclamation point, SBTC. Yeah, it's interesting if you go back to the second page. They said that you would be denied her remains for proper burial. Again, it almost seems like a maternal instinct. Is a kidnapper going to... Use yeah. that as well. They think of that as a reason that the family wants to get the dead body back. And you wouldn't even bear. say that. You would say you'll never get her back. You'll never see her again. Right. Something 
a little more cold and brutal. And they use very lengthy uh, quotes from the movies Dirty Harry and Speed. Right. right. Uh, they write this, the two gentlemen watching over your daughter. I, I would think that you would want to describe the men holding your daughter as bloodthirsty killers. Mm -hmm. Because gentlemen gives the impression that they could never hurt a little girl. Right. So why would you use that word, gentlemen? And in that sentence, it said, the two gentlemen watching over your daughter, it actually wrote, do particularly like you. And if you see the note, they went back and stuck in the word not right. in between. With the proper little annotation of the... Exactly, the little arrow to yeah. stick it in there, right? And I think it points a lot to who would write a note with this grammar and with these corrections, right? So these men are described as gentlemen. Uh, in this note, there's pronouns, we, my, our, us. It's very inconsistent with the pronouns and the ownership of the note. My and our is ownership of the note. And the other pronouns would just be, why wouldn't the writer either write in their person singular or jump back and forth as, unless there's someone else there, right? The third page becomes actually more personal. Before it was Mr. Ramsey, the third page is John, right? More references from the movies. John is referred to as a fat cat. I've read from some people that said Patsy used to use that term about him. It said, use that good Southern common sense, John. That's a quote. So does the kidnapper know John that well to know that he has good Southern common sense? Or is that an expression that the writer of the note often uses? Right? It's kind of, a, again, something that you wonder, okay, who's going to use that, that phrase there? Now, this line was in the movie Speed. It's been said that it's a term used around the Atlanta, Georgia area where John also lived, but it's really supposedly not a term that citizens in Colorado use a lot. And this page is the only time that anyone other than John is referenced. Patsy is not mentioned by name. It says you and your family, but the decision to pay or not is only John's. If you were the kidnappers, you would certainly want to have the mother of the kidnapped person involved in the conversation Absolutely. of whether we're going to pay this money or not. I'd especially want her involved. It's only John's decision, which that's very, very interesting, right? It's up to you now, John. Why would they not include Patsy in that? Uh, so we already saw the initials that could refer to John. They could refer to John Mark Carr, right? Mm -hmm. They put periods in between the letters, so it'd be interesting to, uh, if you wrote, shall be the conqueror, that's an expression you wouldn't put periods in between those letters. Mm -hmm. But if you're writing Subic Bay Training Center, you might have initials there. Sure. Right? Just the periods might tell you something. Now, one more thing that I want to bring out about the note, and I really am wondering about everybody that's going to listen to this. I'm really curious about whether you think this, what I'm going to approach now, is a valid um, point. Because it's kind of um, surreal in a way, but I think it's highly relevant. On the first page, there's this sentence, quote, I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow. Okay, so just now we're concentrating on the word tomorrow. The person writing the note, right, they're writing it. She went to bed Christmas night, the 25th. 
the note was found the next morning by 5, 5.30 in the morning. So this, everything happened between 10 p.m. on the 25th and 5 a.m. on the 26th, right? I would think only the writer or the, uh, yeah, the writer of the note is thinking that tomorrow, they haven't gone to bed yet. So tomorrow is the 26th, right? right? Now, if you come home with your kids on Christmas night and you put them to bed and you went to a party, you had a great day on Christmas. When you wake up the day after Christmas is the worst day of your life, the day after Christmas. Because when you went to bed on, on Christmas night, everything was great. You wake up the 26th, it's the worst day of your life. Is the way I would look at it, right? Mm -hmm. So the writer of the note is the only one. The police would get there. They're called on the 26th. Their reference date would be, we got the call on the 26th. So in their mind, this crime, basically, I know they put in between these dates, but for them, the date might be the 26th that the crime occurred, that they're investigating it. So the only person that, in a subjective sense, would be thinking that John Bonet was murdered Christmas night was, is it the person that wrote the note? And it's interesting to me that if you look at the uh, grave, John Bonet's grave, um, the date of death is Christmas, December 25th, which I would think as a parent, I would think I'd save the memory of Christmas. And I think the day after Christmas was the worst day. And that's when she died. Right. Because she was alive when you went to bed on Christmas. You wake up on the 26th and she's not. Correct. But her feeling was, and she wrote on the tombstone, uh, date of death, the 25th. There's only two hours, technically, between 10 p.m. and midnight for the crime to have occurred on the 25th. That's true. I never actually thought of that. So I'm just curious whether people go along with me on that. I, I or actually do. Or whether being too, too picky, but no. I don't think so. You're right. I mean, so really only the people involved there that did it or the people involved in the investigation know that they came home at 10, right? So you have that two-hour window, but they make the decision to write the 25th on the... Right. So that's an interesting point. You want to go through some of the interview stuff that... Uh, yeah. That John... The statements. Yep. Yeah. Because they did not agree to be interviewed uh, for, I think, almost a year. They each had separate attorneys. They would not agree until the uh, district attorney's office agreed to give their attorneys everything on the case. Right. Now, Boulder Police Department refused to share their entire investigation, but the district attorney's office decided that they weren't going to get John and Patsy in for an interview unless they gave them everything and they decided to do it. Right. So they actually came in for these interviews, I believe, you know, uh, almost a year in time later. So they knew every fact of the case. They knew every theory that the police had at that time when they were interviewed. So I think it'd be interesting to look at some of the comments, uh, answers given by John and Patsy when they were being interviewed. Yeah, I can read. Uh, yeah, I think if you some... read like a couple pages of John's. Sure. Q&A, you know, it's Q&A. Yeah. Um, one of the things he said... Uh... On page one here, John Ramsey statement, he says, I think I went into the bathroom, probably went into the bathroom, took a shower, just started to get dressed. I remember I was standing at my sink 
and I was probably brushing my teeth or combing my hair or something, and I heard Patsy scream. I was asked the question, you know about what time it was you heard her scream? His answer was, it would have probably been between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. Question, did you see your wife get up that morning? No. So you had already been in the bathroom when she got up? Right. Describe that scream. It was just a, she screamed my name and I knew. I could just tell that something was just terribly wrong. And I just went charging downstairs. Patsy is hysterical. I don't remember exactly what she said. I believe that it was like, they have John Bonet. And she gave me this note. Did you do anything before the 911 call that you can think of? I think we both checked John Bonet's room and probably Burke's room before that. Question. Describe to me how you checked their rooms. Well, I think I ran upstairs, up the spiral staircase to her room, and went in and looked around and she wasn't there. Another question. Describe how you looked around. Did you look under her bed? What did you do? I don't remember. I tell you I looked more later in the morning and she wasn't in her bed. Question, Patsy was with you at the time when you checked John Bonet's room? You said we. I don't think she was. I think she checked. I don't think she was with me, as I recall. She might have been right behind me. There was just a lot of running around. So that's before you call the police, is that right? I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. So... I mean, you're getting a gist of how John answered these questions. And you might think, well, you know, it's, I think it was five months later before he was interviewed. But if you think back to, if you're my age, the uh, JFK uh, murder, or think of 9-11, where you were, what you were doing, um, things like that. When a day is, sticks out in your mind, you can kind of remember, and you always, it's always in your mind of, of your actions. So this was the worst day of their lives. And it's understandable that they were confused and upset and may not remember everything that they did. But um, I still think we can certainly analyze any answers that they gave to these questions. So just over what you went over, only 15 of his sentences on the first couple of pages, 40% of his statement showed commitment with his pronoun and his memory. It was all maybe, possibly, I'm not sure, I don't know. 25 sentences, 60% of his answers to the police five months later, when he knew everything about the case, were noncommittal with either missing pronouns, the words probably, or I think, or poor memory. So, interesting that 60% of his answers of what we went over are noncommittal at all. After all that time. Yes. Right. So, you know, you might be thinking that's this very stressful time. Things are happening. Your mind's racing. You may not remember. Uh, but it's interesting. He said Patsy was hysterical. He never had one word about his own emotions being hysterical. Right. And he was seen to be a fairly rational, calm person that day. So, okay, Patsy's hysterical. But what about him? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you're telling something truthfully from your memory emotions that you're feeling as well as other things are usually pulled out. So when you're describing an emotional situation, you would expect to hear from a truthful person some references to how they were feeling or what their emotions were. Just think if you had an accident 
or someone cut you off this morning on your way to work and you went home to tell your spouse what words would be coming out of your mouth about the emotions that you had when that person did that, right? Well, here's the worst day of their life and there's never any word from John at all about any emotion he felt throughout the whole event, which I would be looking for that. I'm sure. wondering why it wasn't in there. Now, if you're not giving, if a truthful person is giving information, the emotions are generally pulled out unless they're in shock. Then they might keep the emotions back so they can deal with the situation. But this is five months later. So you have to wonder, part of the, the uh, opinion might be, since there's no emotions five months later, maybe you're not really getting the answers strictly from a memory sense. You might be getting answers that have been thought about and, um, you know, what's the best way to answer the question? Maybe you're not getting it right from the memory, possibly. That's one, that's one thing, right? So the emotions to me might be significant that we don't really see emotions from John. So it could be true that Patsy was hysterical, whether she was involved in the crime or not. I know that does not implicate her as being involved in the crime. So her emotion of hysterical doesn't give us any insight into whether she is involved or isn't involved. Either way, someone would probably be hysterical, right? right? John never said in his statements, in his answers, that John Bonet was kidnapped and he never said she was missing, which is just interesting to me. A critical point is when Patsy screams and he goes charging downstairs, he said, Patsy is hysterical. That's present tense. If you're telling a story from your memory, it should be in the past tense. That would be an indication to me that it's, he's not giving his account from remembering coming back down the stairs, just that jumping to the present tense. Right. So when you're telling something it should be past tense, this would indicate to me a very sensitive area in a statement. That's pretty much what you say when you find these things. You say, well, that's sensitive. Then you would continue your interview going back to the sensitive areas to see if it clears up or not, right? Mm -hmm. He believes she said something like, they have John Benet. He then said, and she gave me this note. At that time, he had never seen the note. He wouldn't know that it was this note, this, T-H-I-S. What is he saying? Give me this note. If he's reliving this from his memory, she handed him a piece of paper. And she said, they have John Bonet. He's handed a piece of paper, not this note. So that, again, is a sensitive area to me that's indicating he's not really um, telling it just from his memory of the events. If he had said a note or a piece of paper, you know, I would give him more credit for that coming from his memory. So I was waiting for his reaction when he gets this piece of paper and he starts reading it that they have John Bonet. I was waiting to see his reaction. He should have a reaction to that. He never gave any reaction. It could either be because this part of his story is not coming from his memory, but to be fair, I see three periods after his last sentence, which could mean that he was cut off during his answer by the police officer asking the next question and never had the chance to really uh, continue that answer where I would be looking to see and it's very important when you interview someone, you don't ever interrupt them and don't cut them off because you never know what they're going to say. And it could become very important. And if he had come out with something there about uh, his reaction to it, that would be interesting.
That kind of goes back to what we said one of the last times we spoke, where uh, sometimes the people doing the interviews want to be heard. They just, they don't, they want to be too much of a part of it. They're, you know, a lot of times the police are thinking, what do I have to cover? Right. What am I going to say next? They're not really paying attention to the words that are being given back to them. Right. They get the gist of what the person is saying. Um, but they're really thinking, what's my next question going to be? What else do I have to cover? And it's a pretty common problem that I see. You want me to, um, I can read a little more of John's if you like. There's a, a little more to John's statement. You want to hear that? Okay. The question was asked, do you remember either of you going to Burke's room at that time? He says, I think we did. I think I did. I remember going to his room. I don't remember if it was directly from there to his room or if I went downstairs and back up, but we checked his room pretty shortly thereafter. Question was, was this before the police were called or after? I think before, or at least, I'm not sure. When you checked his room, what did you see? I just looked in and he was in bed and he was asleep. I mean, I knew he was there and he was okay. Question was, after that, what did you do? Well, sometime in that sequence, I mean, Patsy called 911. I might have looked around the house some more. Question, you have to describe that just a little bit. I know I looked in the refrigerator. We have this walk-in refrigerator. We always worried about the kids getting in there. Before or after the 911 call? I think if it was after, probably. Okay, let's hold up there for a second. Just on this page, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, do you remember either of you going to Burke's room? He said, I think we did. I think I did. That's a contradiction. Then he said, I remember going to his room, but I don't remember if it was directly from there or if I went downstairs. So he's not sure. But then he said, we checked his room pretty thoroughly. So that's a sensitive area. It's either he did or they both did. Right. And he's not being uh, very specific about it. So it might be important. Mm -hmm. We'd want to go back to that. Um, not sure when that happened. And then this sentence, I just looked in, he was in bed and he was asleep. Now that's Burke's asleep. That's what he told us. Right. And this is from his memory of that night. But then he immediately said, I mean, I knew he was there and he was okay. Now, his mind made him, I call this a change. He did not have to change that sentence about Burke being asleep. He could have just left it like that. Because he went back and changed it to, I knew he was there, right? Would give you an indication, a sensitive area that maybe Burke was not asleep. Because he wouldn't, why go back and correct yourself? Right. So they came up with this phone recording that, that supposedly you could hear Burke in the background when they were calling 911. And he's, he supposedly was asking, what did you find? And things like that. And then they checked that tape. And I've heard different results of whether he is on the tape or not. But that point right there of changing a sleep to just knowing he was there, it's a sensitive area for him. Why, why would it matter, really? Five months later, Burke's okay. Why would it matter whether he was asleep it must matter to John because he corrected himself. Or yeah, or he knew it was going to matter later. I mean, too, right? Yeah. And if it comes out that uh, one of the theories is that Burke is involved, well, here you have Burke being awake or up or whatever. I mean, does that become significant? We just don't know the answers, but it raises a lot of questions. Sure.
Um, and after that, he's very um, nonspecific about all of his actions. He doesn't know when he did things, what he did. So go ahead with that last page. Um, he, he was asked, do you remember what, we, what she said on that 911 call? His answer, she was screaming, as I recall. I remember her struggling to make the person understand what the emergency was. So then what? Then what did you do? Well, before the first policeman arrived, I went upstairs and put on some pants and a shirt and probably looked through the house some more. Did you ever check this area, the butler's kitchen? I don't remember specifically looking there, no. I might have, but I don't remember. And he end, then he ended his story by saying he was at the front door when the first officer arrived at the house. Right. So his first one is Patsy was screaming and she was struggling on the 911 call. I would wonder why. Was it that she didn't really know what to say, what words to use right. to say that her daughter's been kidnapped or missing? So it would be interesting to go back at some point and listen to the words she used or how... Why did she struggle? That would be the question. Why was she struggling on the call? I know you're hysterical. You're trying to make someone, you know, listen to you and get out there, but that would raise, uh, raise a little bit of wonder. And he just said, I probably looked through the house some more. And at that point, he had to put his clothes on, so apparently he was doing everything before this just with his underwear on, I would think. You know, interesting. Mm. Um, he's... But to say, I probably looked through the house some more. I would never stop looking. Exactly. Until they got there. Exactly. And he doesn't remember uh, specifically looking at the butler's kitchen or whatever. You know, so overall, if I were just examining what we just went over, if I were interviewing him and somebody wanted an opinion, uh, is he being, your opinion of statement analysis is the person is either being totally truthful or they're not. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And if they're not, you know, you, you have to go and interview them and to find out why not or what aren't they being truthful about. So the indicators that I see in the points we just went over, uh, of indicators of truthfulness, I don't see any that I could point to as far as the rules of statement analysis to say that, well, that seems like a truthful point. And this is like an, a sign of emotion would be a truthful point, but I don't see any. But the problems with it are no emotion, no emotion no commitment to his memory, a bad memory, um, which we should remember. And we have to ask ourselves, what did he want to get across? What did he want to tell us? Right. And uh, what didn't he tell us? So right. we didn't get a lot of very specific information, even though he had time to review everything leading up to this interview. And you know that he went over and over it. Um, With his attorneys, I'm sure. Yeah. Really had, had very little uh, specific things to say about what his actions were before the police came, which is curious. Yeah. Very curious. And then there was the wife, Patsy Ramsey. And, um, the, uh, her statement was kind of a, I mean, she kind of a drawn out statement here. Go to, uh, do you have 48 and 49? Uh, is it in this piece here or is this the Q and a one? I do have the Q and a as well. There's follow-up questioning of her. Yeah. But it, it looks like almost like she wrote out a statement here. Mm -hmm. If you want to read that, the, the written this out is, statement, this is her statement 
yeah. of what she did. Okay. So yeah, so this is a written uh, a written statement by Patsy Ramsey that was put out. It's not a Q&A form like uh, we just read, but it's, it begins like this. I awakened that morning, probably somewhere between 5.30 and 6. We are going to take off just at 7. And what she's referring to is from a nearby airport in John's private plane. We were going to the lake. We were going to Lake House. I got up and walked over to my bathroom. And I did not take a shower that morning. So I don't know, you know, what exactly I did other than just get dressed, brush my teeth, put on my makeup and get ready to go. And then I walked downstairs, came to the landing, and there was an ironing board. I had a plastic bag that I had just things to throw, throw in to take for my trip. And I think I was here for a couple of minutes, just getting some clothes and things. And then I started down the staircase to go to the kitchen. And the note was on the landing, on the stairs, the bottom of the stairs. There was some lighting on, but it wasn't bright lights, and I started reading the letter. And after the first couple of sentences, realized, you know, what was happening. I ran back up these stairs, okay, and pushed her door to her room. And she was not in her bed. So I yelled out for John, called him, and he came down. And I said, she's been kidnapped. Here's a note, whatever. And I was panicking, you know. I think, I can't remember exactly what I did then, whether... I think I ran downstairs again. Okay, let's hold off there. She starts her note the morning of the 26th. Right. So we don't have any statement from her about what she did the night before. Yeah. Right from her memory, right? And then she said what they're going to do, we are going to take off. We were going to uh, the lake house. Um, she says what she did not do. I did not take a shower. Generally, when people are given a statement of something they did, uh, the the uh, question that you're given is, tell me everything you did that day. They don't generally put in there what they didn't do. I didn't get the paper. I didn't feed the cat. I didn't look walk the dog. They just put in what they did. So she makes it a point uh, to put in there something that she did not do, which to me would be uh, interesting, and it would mean maybe it's not directly coming from her memory. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could say she's probably been peppered by detectives earlier at some point. Did you take a shower? But if you are given your statement from your memory, it should still flow the way it should flow. Even if they put that in her mind, she could answer it later. Mm -hmm. But to put it in her statement, it might be a sensitive area. Um, she goes, and then I started down the staircase to go to the kitchen. And she said, the note, the note was on the landing. So right there is hugely significant because... Like we said before, she didn't know it was the note at that time in her memory. It was a piece of paper or three pieces of paper. For her to say a statement from her memory, the note would be highly, uh, almost like a deceptive criteria mm -hmm. because she would not know it was a note. Like you could, and people that aren't familiar with statement analysis say, well, now she knows it's a note. She's given a statement now. 
all it tells you is she's not giving you this account directly from her memory. It's not following the rules of memory so that you want to listen to people and believe them and you want to clear them and you want to say, boy, you gave me a truthful statement. But the things I'm pointing out can be um, glaring problems that if I were interviewing her, I wouldn't say anything. I'd go back to those points to see if it clears up and if it makes sense why she phrased it. So right now we don't have the luxury of doing that. And I'm just making comments on what you see. That's a pretty huge point to refer to those pieces of paper at that point as the note. Right. So we left off um, the top of she the ran next downstairs page. and said, you know, what do we do? What do we do? She was asking her. He said, call 911, call the police. I think asked him to check on Burke. One of us checked on Burke. John came down and he kind of crouched on the floor. He was in his underwear and read the papers on the floor right there. And, you know, I was trying to get this 911 person to, it just seemed like it took forever to drag through. Anyway, got the message across. She said she would send somebody out and, oh, God in heaven. Oh. Then I phoned, called our friends, Mr. and Mrs. Fleet White and Mr. and Mrs. John Fernie. They live in Boulder. I think John went back up to get dressed, and I called them and told them that she's been kidnapped. She's missing. And then I started waiting for the police to show up. And pretty soon a squad car came. You know, officer came up. And I remember thinking, because it said somewhere in the note, if you do that, if you call somebody, that's not good. Blah, blah, blah. And I just remembered thinking, oh my God, I hope they are not watching me. I mean, what if they are watching if the policeman comes? I mean, all this was just rushing through my head. Anyway, came in and, and I was just rattled. I think John came in and I think he kind of walked over he kind of walked us over to this sunroom, tried to calm us down and, you know, try to explain what happened. And then they kind of took over. Do you think if you were giving your official statement, you'd say blah, blah, blah? <laughs> yeah, no. As I was reading that, I'm going, wow, oh, here's a problem. Blah, blah, blah. It's very interesting that she said she started reading the note. This is in the past. You either read the note or you didn't. And when someone says started reading it, it usually implies they never finished it. But she said here, somewhere in the note, it said, if you call the police, blah, blah, blah. That was later on in the note. So if you only started it, then she didn't see that part unless she wrote it. She knew it was in there, right? Right. Yeah, because that's at the end. Sure. Yeah. So uh, she says three different ways. She said in the statement, the note was on the landing. Then she said the stairs. Then she said the bottom of the stairs. In her mind, it should be one reference. She either called it the landing or the stairs or the bottom of the stairs. She refers to that note three different locations, actually. And why subjectively giving her statement would she refer to the same place in three different ways? Mm -hmm. Unless maybe it wasn't really there. Right. Possibly. Right. She also said something here that struck me as you were talking about this. And then I started waiting for the police. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Started waiting. 
that means she didn't finish waiting, right? Mm. She said there was some lighting on, but it wasn't bright, and started reading the letter. So now it's a letter. It went from a note to a letter, which is inconsistent, inconsistent terminology. Again, something you would ask her about. Maybe once she saw it was more than one page in your mind subjectively, you now refer to it a letter. I could accept that, but you'd, you'd want to be able to ask these questions. Do you find on the bottom of this page, the one thing I just read, I think John came in and I think he kind of walked us over to this sunroom, tried to calm us down and, you know, tried to explain what happened. Who's he, who's us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're going to calm down the police officer? Yeah. Again, then if you're reading her statement and trying to find indicators of truthfulness, um, not a lot I would say backs her up because she changed note to letter, the location. She put she hoped. She didn't really have any emotion other than hoped. Um, she told them she's been kidnapped. Um, she never told us that she's been kidnapped. So there's a lot of questions about that version of what she did that day that you'd want to go back and try to flesh out these points. I found it interesting too, when she started talking about the lighting. Yeah. Like, like, you know, that much time goes by and you remember there was some lighting, but it wasn't bright lights. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really, you know, I'm not going to lie. I don't know what that exactly means, but it, why are you remembering that? And why are you mentioning it as a matter of significance? Yeah. It's interesting. That might be maybe a truthful point. If she found it and she was trying to read it and the lights weren't on, that might stick in your memory. There's something that you could say, it is strange. It sticks out to you. You were good to pick up on that. Maybe that's something you could say, well, that, that would be a truthful indicator right there mm. that she tried to read the note or the letter in an area that wasn't too bright. Mm. Right. Yeah. Wow. And then there was, there's excerpts here we have um, from follow-up questioning of Patsy Ramsey, which is more of a Q&A. Do you want to go through that? Yeah. You can go through that? Yep. So um, it says, detectives felt that Patsy never went to sleep. And that was why she was wearing the same clothes she had on the day before and was heavily made up with makeup when they arrived. She was questioned. Question, after getting up, can you indicate the first stop you made, the first thing you did? And her answer were, my clothes were probably thrown in the bathtub. So I'd say right there, she didn't answer the question. Right. What's the first thing you did? My clothes were in the bathtub. Why wouldn't she answer the question? Yeah. I mean, that's a total deflection right. right there. Question. Let me stop you there. Those were clothes you had worn the night before? Right. Question. Um, he, he, the police officer says, okay, seems odd to me. Yeah. So they already are picking up on that, that her answer is there. Plus... When they got there, she was still wearing the clothes she wore to the party the night before. Mm. She said she came home, they put uh, John Bonet to bed, and she stayed up packing, right? But when they get there at 5.30 in the morning, she still has the party clothes and her makeup on. So they found that to be curious, like she never went to bed that night. And earlier she said, you know, I got dressed and got put my makeup on. We're getting ready for the plane. It's like you're flying from Boulder to, where was it, Georgia? Is that where they were yeah. going to Georgia? Uh -huh. I mean, you're, you're talking about a three-hour flight. Well, they were going to go to Michigan, to oh, their Michigan. other vacation home in Michigan that, that morning. Okay, it's still yeah. a couple hours mm -hmm. in the air. Yeah. You're going to throw the clothes on from last night? She sounds to me like a little bit more of a high-maintenance type person. Mm -hmm. Like, she wouldn't do that. And that's one reason I would probably go back to that. Yeah. I mean, it's something, it's curious. Yeah. 
You're going to be getting on your private plane, all your makeup on, and you're going to wear the clothes you had last night? Right. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, now, finding the note. Question. Are they on the first or second floor, the sconces? Talking about the lighting. They go in between. They are in the stairway. Okay. I come down where these three pieces of paper were. Question. And when you first see it, what's your first reaction? Well, my initial reaction was that, I mean, I probably would stack things going upstairs, you know, shoes or toys or whatever. So there was typically always something there going one way or the other. But this was laid out across the tread, you know? So, I mean, I just thought, well, papers, you know, John would have taken up or uh, up to see or something. I don't know. And then when I came down and looked at it, glanced at it, my first reaction was that it was a note from my cleaning lady. So right there, they asked her what her um, first reaction was. She changed it to my initial reaction. And then later she said my first reaction. Maybe that's the same thing. You think they could have used the same word? Mm. Um, she's now referring to this as papers, whereas before in her statement, she referred to it as the note. So it's interesting at this point, she's just referring to it as papers on the steps. Yeah. And he continues, he says, let me stop you right there. Or let me just stop you there. You're kind of bounding down the stairs, I would imagine. Right. Kind of get going. Yeah. You come to it. You stop and you look and see. You kind of bend over from higher up. No, I passed it then turned back around to look and see what it was. Did you step over that rung or? I don't think I stepped on it because, you know, you step on paper, it kind of does that. So I somehow got around it. Yeah, she's not really answering the question. She can't remember. She doesn't think she would step on the piece of paper. So you wish that she would answer the question, um, but she's not really answering. She's not really sure. She's talking about what, what she thought uh, that it might have been. Mm -hmm. um, the detectives then focused on who handled the note because when it was tested and processed for fingerprints, there were none. So he says, let me back you up again. You sent a minute ago something to the effect that maybe you went and got him the note. Do you know how he, she, she, cuts off and answers, I don't know exactly. I mean, I left the note. Whether I picked it up and threw it down, just took off, and then came back down the stairs, and whether I picked it up, and then he came down, I gave it to him, and said, here's the note or whatever. Now, are you just guessing, or do you know? I can't remember exactly, but I know I left the note. This is a very interesting series of questions here. In her statement, she had said she carried the letter up in the note and handed it to John. But here, when she's answering these questions, she's not sure if she just put it down and took off. That's a pretty big difference. Why wouldn't you take the letters pages with you up to show John if that was your intent, right? So she's not answering the question. She said now she can't remember. If you took all of the statements in this last part that Patsy made out of her statement and only left the sentences that she committed to with her pronoun and with certainty you have this is her statement 
I mean, I left the note. I gave it to him. I know I left the note. <laughs> Those are the only sentences she's committing to. And she's saying, I left the note two times. And she knows she left the note. She's not saying that I left the note on the stairs because her original statement was she carried the note up and gave it to John. So why is she only thing that she can commit to in this series of answers is I left the note. I gave it to him. I know I left the note. She's telling us she left the note. Those are her words. The day after their interviews with police, John and Patsy had an interview with the press. It was kept a secret from any reporters that had been critical of them. Only reporters that were sympathetic to them were invited. During that press conference, Patsy then announced a $100,000 reward. We f and she put this, said this, we feel like there's at least two people on the face of this earth who know who did this. That's the killer and someone that person may have confided in. We need the one phone call to this number that may help the authorities come to a successful conclusion with this case. Interesting to me is she said two people know. Yeah, that's bizarre. Right. That's very bizarre. Right. And what's even more bizarre, most of the rewards that I've ever seen, you get paid leading to the arrest of indictment or conviction of someone. All they're asking for, for this reward, is make a phone call that allows the authorities, quote, to come to a successful conclusion with this case. So if someone called the uh, authorities and um, conclusively, you know, either said they did it or ruled out the Ramses or something like that, they could get a reward without an arrest being made, without a conviction. I would think if you're offering this money, you would want to catch the person that did this to your daughter. And you would word it that way. Right. Successful conclusions to me sounds like a, an odd wording. I've never seen a reward that said, just, just help us come to a conclusion and you get the money. And, and what is a successful conclusion in their eyes? Uh, that's their the mind? thing. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I want to know who it is. Exactly. You help us find the killer is one thing. A successful conclusion. That's an that's a yeah. odd choice of words. Now, during the same press conference, Patsy makes this denial. Listen carefully. Quote, I'm appalled that anyone would think that John or I would be involved in such a hideous, heinous crime. Now, those are almost the same words that Susan Smith used in her press conference when she strapped her two children in the backseat of her car and let them drown in that lake. Yep. It's that. almost exactly the same, right? Um, she said, but let me assure you that I did not kill John Bonet. I did not have anything to do with it. I love that child with the whole of my heart and soul. So this is her denial. I'm appalled that anyone would think that John or I Number one, he's sitting right next to her on the couch. She separates him from her and says, John or I. If, if something happened in your family, wouldn't you be able to say regarding your spouse, we, we had nothing to do with it. She is not saying we had nothing to do with it or that I can't believe you accuse us of doing it, us or we. She separates herself, John or I, and listen to the next part let me assure you that's asking permission, which if you're telling the truth and you're denying something, you don't need anybody's permission. She says, let me assure you, she's asking permission that I did not kill John Bonet. She only denies for herself. Yeah. With the killing part. Instead of saying we. Exactly. 
And I did not have anything to do with it, the killing. That is not a denial for being involved in some degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a pretty good denial. I did not have anything to do with it. But she brought John into it and did not deny the crime for John. Right. She does. Yeah. She brings him in the front part, but not yes. at this point. Yep. She brought him into it for suspicion and then only denies the crime for herself. Hmm. So that is pretty amazing to um, me. Now, her, yeah, that is very amazing. Her last part, she referred to John Bonet as that child. That's very impersonal. I love that child. Um, people would refer to their um, son or daughter in their relationship, a daughter. They refer to them by their name, right? Not by saying something so impersonal. Some people feel when they're doing child abuse cases, if a person is giving a statement and they refer to their own children in that term, it's a very, it indicates a very bad relationship, poor relationship. Maybe they're not close. So at this point, she pretty consistently, and John also referred to John Bonet in that more impersonal tone, uh, where when he described in another interview of finding John Bonet's body, the, when he saw her body, he was referring to her as that child. And it wasn't until he said he knew she was dead and picked her up was the first time he referred to her as my daughter. So some of the theories about these, using these types of words, especially in cases of child abuse or, uh, you know, marital problems, is that if you are doing something abusing your children in some way, you can't really bring yourself to refer to it like that. Refer to them, you're abusing them. You can't say my son, my daughter, or their name. So you use a more impersonal term, that child. It can be a tip-off in cases like that, possible. Here we had, until he recognizes in his words that she's gone, that she's died, uh, he did not refer to her in a very personable, um, close relationship way. He was very impersonal, and she is very impersonal here, saying that child, very, yeah. very impersonal. And then as time goes by, the son, uh, Burke Ramsey, um, he at the time was nine years old. There was a brother. There was talk that he may have been involved. He may have killed her accidentally and his parents helped cover it up because they didn't want to lose another child. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it's interesting because I read everything I could at the time, the books that were coming out from people that supposedly had inside information of who said what. And the only thing I could find about Burke was he was interviewed by, I think, police one time or by psychologists. And Everything I read, the police were comfortable ruling him out. So until the uh, Dr. Phil had him on his TV show the year of the 20th anniversary uh, when this happened, and he was trying to exonerate the family, saying, you know, they were cleared by DNA. Burke was. Yeah. Or Dr. Phil. All, Dr. Phil was saying the family oh. was cleared. Okay. And he kept bringing it up, trying to get people to not keep going after the Ramsey family, thinking they're involved. And he's specifically interviewing Burke. And it was a two uh, a two day show that he had interviewing him, um, and they were asking him. And I believe during that interview, the first time I heard it was Burke admitted that he was up that night, which there was his special drink with some kind of tea on a table with a glass. 
And if you remember, John Bonet had some undigested pineapple in her stomach, which was not at the party. Uh, so it had to come later. And there was a bowl of pineapple on the table that had Patsy's fingerprint on it. Patsy uh, adamantly denied giving her any pineapple that night. But I believe uh, Burke said something about getting up. And he may even have admitted that he had the tea that was on the table. So, uh, I, you know, I had not heard that before. I'd have to go back and listen to that part to see if he said that he gave her the pineapple. But it was certainly a gray area when I heard it that I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. That he was now saying that he woke up and wanted to play with his toys that night, right? So he was interviewed by Dr. Phil, who repeatedly told the audience that all the family members have been cleared of suspicion through the touch DNA. Uh, and they had two documentaries, three experts on one that said it was definitely a stranger and they're all cleared on DNA, the family. And the other one, Dr. Henry Lee, their conclusion was that it was probably more likely somebody in the family, right? So Dr. Phil wanted to ask Burke the question of whether he killed his sister so that he could deny it once and for all, put it to, put it to rest. Let's see if he did. Dr. Phil told Burke that there were still people that believed that he killed his sister. Dr. Phil asked him, what do you want to say about that? Burke answered with a smile on his face, where's the evidence or the lack thereof? He was given every opportunity by Dr. Phil set up to make a good denial that I didn't do it. I want people to know I didn't do it. It's interesting that he could not say those words. He did not say those words when he had every prompting to do it. So his answer, where's the evidence or the lack thereof, is no denial whatsoever. It's an argument. Where's the evidence? Show me the evidence. That's, a, that's, that's not even a weak denial. It's no denial. Right. So when a person generally comes in and they're being interviewed about a crime, the second that they realize they may be a suspect, the next thing they do is deny it. Mm -hmm. And you're going to categorize and listen, and we could do a show uh, podcast at some point about denials, what are good denials, which ones are not sure. denials. But he offered no denial whatsoever. He responded with just an argument. And we have to ask ourselves why, when he was set up for this, to give the perfect answer and to put it to rest once and for all and not maybe have to deal with it for a long time, uh, he could not give a denial in the case. Yeah. I, and, you know, to be honest, I don't know where they all are today. I know Patsy is deceased, right, the mother. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure about John Ramsey. And Burke Ramsey, I think, after the documentaries, filed lawsuits yeah. suing certain The second documentary, they pretty much... Yeah. They put a uh, they put together a body of uh, like John Bonet using the material. They had a nine year old boy come in and use the flashlight that was found in the kitchen. That uh, the Ramseys never said they didn't know where the flashlight came from, but friends of theirs said they gave them that flashlight as a gift one time. But they used the same flashlight, same type, and they had this nine year old boy strike this uh, dummy that they had made, and they said that the uh, uh, wounds in the skull were exactly the same yeah. as what John Bonet had. So they made a stronger conclusion about it. I can see, to, to be honest with you, I can see why, um, I can obviously see why Burke would be upset and trying to get that out. But then again, at the same time, 20 year, 20 year reunion, you got to ask yourself, why would you go on Dr. Phil? Why are it's, it's, in other words, you know how society is, right? We always joke around, not joke around, but we always talk about, with actually a little bit of disgust, uh, 
post 9-11, like in two weeks later, people are talking about their stock portfolios and they're forgetting the magnitude of what people forget. That's my point. Like this is 20 years later. Most of the society has forgotten all about this. I'm sure there was some money to appear on the show, but why would you put yourself back in that position to be questioned at all? If you have anything to do with this, why, why in the hell would you, would you go on a, a talk show, a gossip show? The people that commit the crimes, they always act as though they did not commit the crime. Right. So when, were, when people come in and they're asked to take a polygraph by the police, my, uh, I had two to three people a day that were asked to show up for a polygraph, right? And we worked over, what, 20-some days a month. My average was two people a month that did not show up. Everybody showed up because they knew if they didn't show up or didn't agree to do it, then the police would make them more of a suspect. Sure. So, so you think maybe they try to act like, you know, I had nothing to do with it and a truthful person, an innocent person would come in and take the test. And it was amazing to me how many people who were guilty of the crime would show up for their polygraph and they would just hope that they didn't get caught, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Take it, roll the dice, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, I mean, the other thing too is how much of them are looking for attention and things like that. I, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know where they all are today or what, what the brother is doing. I know it's a very tragic case. And what's even more tragic is that it's still left without a definitive answer. You know, this little girl is dead. She's gone. Uh, if there are members of her family that didn't have anything to do with their, their, you know, they're suffering the loss and they're trying to go on and with all the public scrutiny, we brought it back up this week specifically because of the statements and the significance of the statements and how you can break them down. And um, I think it's, I think it was an amazing topic. I think it's a great case to talk about when you're talking about statement analysis. Um, you know, having Jerry here to break this down. <laughs> I've known him for a long time and I got to be honest with you. And other people that we worked with have said this too. When you're in a room with him and he starts telling you these things, I, it doesn't even matter if I've heard it before. I still sit glued to him and listen to it because there's always another little, another little tidbit or another little nugget of a statement. You say, I didn't see that either. And you learn, I learn something every time I talk to him, which is why I, I we're very fortunate to have him on the podcast. So I hope you all found this interesting. And what we really want to do, like we always say on Under the Yellow Tape, we're not here to change your mind. Just open your mind. Think about it. Some of you might have, have a lot of memory of this case back in the media. Some of you that are younger may have never even heard of it. And it might cause you to go look it up. It's a very interesting case. It's a very sad, sad ending here. But, you know, take what was just explained to you and use it to help form your opinion. What we're going to hopefully do with Jerry in the near future is uh, we're going to talk a little bit of maybe about um, some current events. And one I would like to discuss with him in the near future maybe is the interviews that have recently been given by uh, Hunter Biden and talk a little bit about some of his business dealings and, and spe uh, specifically the answers that he's given along the way and maybe break that down um, and give everybody a little something to think about and come up with their own opinions. Jerry, man, I really appreciate you being here again, and I can't wait till we do the next one. Uh, man, thanks again. Thank you. I definitely appreciate the fact you let me come in and talk about these things. They're still interesting to me, and oh, yeah. I wish that we could solve these cases. And, you know, who knows in the future, you know, hopefully it will be solved for the sake of everyone. Sure. I hope so. All right. Thanks, bud. Take Thank care, everyone. You.